one of the key things is um, what's known as metacognitive awareness, where you're able to step back from the thoughts and observe the thoughts from a witnessing awareness. So then um, you're not as involved in the content of the thought or trying to change the content. It's more just you're aware of it. And then is it useful or not? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, all of the third wave approaches, then it has that component of mindfulness that involves stepping back. Um, being aware of a thought versus thinking a thought is the distinction. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there, you know, there can be different mindfulness practices that are also about getting in touch with the body and just working on being in the present moment. Hi, I'm Ricky Dorries. Welcome to episode 32 of the Mind That Ego podcast. Reverend Dr. John Fries returns to the show to share his synthesis of Buddhism and acceptance and commitment therapy. John is a Buddhist minister and spent 12 years as a monk with Thich Nhat Hanh. He has a PhD in practical theology and a master of divinity. In addition to his Buddhist counseling practice, he teaches contemplative studies at University of the West and Europa University. As John guides me through his model, we stop along the way to discuss practical matters from discerning genuine values, taking meaningful action, handling difficult emotions, being aware of thought, and how to cultivate wholesome states of mind. This is a comprehensive and useful overview of a pragmatic system that will benefit those just beginning and those in advanced stages of their spiritual journey. So John, welcome back to the Mind That Ego podcast. Thanks a lot, um, Ricky. Good to be back. It's great to see you again. I know last time we touched upon the trauma-informed approach to Vipassana meditation. And in this episode, we're going to look at your approach that fuses Buddhism and acceptance and commitment therapy, which we're really excited to, to explore. We will, it's, it's actually a first for the podcast. We're going to add graphics. <laughs> so that, that's, that's exciting. We're going to have some graphics on, on this one. Um, I'm wondering, like, to start us off, if, if we could begin by looking at how you you kind of saw these two approaches as compatible and, and what initially drew you to, to putting these together and making this comparison or synthesis before then leading into the technical uh, mm -hmm. overview of, of the, the different systems and how they kind of work together. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so just as a refresher, in case people hadn't heard the first episode we did together, um, so I was a Buddhist monk for 12 years. And then after that, I came back, I moved back to the States and um, went to graduate school. And so I did a Master of Divinity at University of the West, which is a Buddhist college in LA. And then I did my PhD at Claremont School of Theology, um, focusing on practical theology. And so that's in Claremont, which is in LA County. Um, so it's near LA. Um, and so actually there was a deal between University of the West and Claremont School of Theology where you could take classes in each, in either of the places. So I was at a Christian theology school, but I could take classes at the Buddhist university where I did my master's. Mm -hmm. So my PhD was focused on pastoral counseling. Um, and so I took a psychology class at University of the West. And so it was taught by the chair of the department, um, Hiro Sasaki. And 
So the class was what it was on third wave, uh, third wave behavioral therapy was the title of the class. And so he taught acceptance commitment therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So those are all considered third wave models. And so when I was learning about ACT, it it definitely like made a lot of sense and it really clicked for me. And as part of my PhD, I had to do a clinical residency at a counseling center. And so I was looking for um, a model that I could use in the counseling um, that would work as a way for me to offer the Buddhist uh, teaching that I had. So I wanted to use my Buddhist teaching in counseling um, and ACT kind of gave me like a matrix or a way of organizing the Buddhist teaching so that um, it just made it all kind of fit together and be coherent. And then it, because the, you know, the Buddhist teaching originally is like, you know, a meditation retreat or you go to the temple or something like that. So it, it wasn't designed to do uh, in a counseling context, mm -hmm. whereas ACT, ACT was designed to do in a counseling context. So basically, ACT gave me a matrix to do the counseling work using my Buddhist teaching, my Buddhist theory and practice um, in the context of counseling. And I know Stephen Hayes, you've been in contact mm -hmm. with, he's also been on the podcast before. Um, mm -hmm. He, I think he, he had some influence from Buddhism, right, with creating mm -hmm. ACT, at least the... Uh, and I know you'll go over this, but the approach of infusing or integrating mindfulness or, or awareness, which seems to be a, a hallmark of that third wave. Um, mm -hmm. Could you, I, I guess for people that aren't familiar, how would you you describe like behavioral therapy and, and the ethos of that and its purpose as a, a counseling um, tool mm -hmm. or practice or modality? Right. Yeah, so the idea of third wave implies there were uh, two previous waves, right? So, um, <laughs> um, so the first wave of as as best as I understand it, the first wave is um, behavioral therapy, where it's just looking at conditioning and behavior. Um, so B.F. Skinner would be the kind of archetypal example. Um, and then what comes to my mind is like the, the idea of like Pavlov and Pavlov's dog, where mm -hmm. he feeds the dog some food and he rings a bell when he feeds them. So they get conditioned to when they hear the bell, they think they're going to get fed. So that would be like you're using conditioning to work with behavior. Um, so the idea is just you're looking at somebody's behavior patterns and then you're trying to adapt the behavior patterns to cause some kind of positive change. So then the second wave is the cognitive behavioral therapy. And so then that looks at the relationship between cognitive story and behavior. And a lot of the work with cognitive behavioral therapy is that you're working at looking at the thought patterns and then assessing them for, you know, how accurate are they? Um, if you have a negative thought pattern, is there a way then to replace it with a positive thought pattern? Um, you're working with the cognitive content mm -hmm. and as it relates to behavior. So then the third wave um, 
like you're saying, the hallmark tends to be that it brings in mindfulness practice. And so that's kind of a game changer because um, one of the qualities of mindfulness practice is the ability to step back from your thoughts and just observe your thoughts. Um, so it's the, sorry, my dog is. <laughs> is he jumping on the, the computer? <laughs> Well, anyway, I, he wants I'm the guest my, on the show. If you see my computer moving around, it's because I'm adjusting it for my dog. <laughs> uh, okay, so so the mindfulness. One of the key things is um, what's known as metacognitive awareness, where you're able to step back from the thoughts and observe the thoughts from a witnessing awareness. So then um, you're not as involved in the content of the thought or trying to change the content. It's more just you're aware of it, and then is it useful or not? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, all of the third wave approaches, then it has that component of mindfulness that involves stepping back, um, being aware of a thought versus thinking a thought is the distinction. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there, you know, there can be different mindfulness practices that are also about getting in touch with the body and just working on being in the present moment. So um, I think that's kind of the general distinction between the three different waves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know um, ACT, I think, is one of or, or the most kind of um, studied and, and like the research behind it is, is really solid as well, isn't it, in terms of the effect of it and, and its usefulness in that therapeutic setting. Um, and for self-help as well. And I know that's something we'll, we'll look at today. Mm -hmm. um, we touched upon one of the, the components of ACT with, with mindfulness. I wonder if you could give an overview of the, the six processes that are core mm -hmm. to, to the ACT um, approach. Sure. Um, so yeah, Stephen Hayes, one of the main developers, um, he was influenced somewhat by mindfulness um, I, so actually, I, I was able to talk to him after we did our first episode. So he kind of told me more. <laughs> um, so he was influenced also by um, Yogananda and the Self-Realization Fellowship. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think one of the main things he got was just this ability to get in touch with the witnessing awareness. Um, and then that led him to go deeper into his own research in behavioral psychology. So I think he was influenced somewhat by mindfulness and Eastern traditions. And that was kind of like a catalyst for him to go deeper into the behavioral psychology. Um, and so basically what he came up with is this idea of, um, you know, happiness or wellness, he would define it as psychological flexibility and then unhappiness or, you know, suffering, so to speak, um, he characterized that as psychological rigidity. Mm -hmm. And so then he isolated six different processes. Um, so each process has a positive side and a, a negative side, like a, a flip side. Um, and so these six processes that he found, these are the core processes that can lead to greater psychological flexibility and or greater psychological rigidity. And so, um, they don't necessarily go in any particular order. They're kind of, they're interconnected with each other. Um, so I'll just kind of list them off. Um, 
the flexibility side and then the flip side is the rigidity side. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one is contact with the present moment. So if you're a therapist working with a client, you're assessing is the person able to be in the present moment or are they tending to be um, caught up in regrets about the past or worries about the future? So that would be um, contact with the present moment. So mm -hmm. the flip side would be um, not in contact with the present moment. <laughs> right. Okay. A bit disconnected, bit bit kind of dissociated from the. Right. Phenomenon. Yeah. Right. Um, then you have the process of acceptance, which means can you accept what's arising in your awareness versus experiential avoidance? You're you're trying to push it away or get away from it. Um, and a lot of time that has to do with physical sensations and emotions. Are you able to be with those things? Um, can you hold them in your awareness versus you push it away or try to escape from it? Okay. Then another one is cognitive diffusion. Mm -hmm. um, so diffusion is technically not a word yet in the dictionary, but uh, <laughs> uh, it is a good word, I think. Yeah, agreed. Um, <laughs> so um so that's what we were saying the the difference between being aware of a thought versus thinking a thought so meaning that there's some cognitive uh narrative happening mm -hmm. and so it's the difference between buying into it versus you're aware of it from a more detached place and so you're not bought into it you can be aware of it without being bought into it um so yeah, just various thought patterns that you would have. You're you're tuning into, am I grabbing on or am I just aware that it's there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, then there's another one called self as context. And so this is similar to the cognitive diffusion. The idea is, are you identifying or grabbing onto a concept of self? Versus are you able to have a, a more witnessing awareness of what's arising in your experience without mm -hmm. identifying as, oh, this is me or I'm this. Mm -hmm. um, so in practice, it usually means, um, you know, you notice, oh, I'm identifying with this concept about myself. You recognize that and you step back from it. And so you're shifting from the conceptualized self to the witnessing self. That's just the observing self. And then at an even deeper level, you can get to this non-dual ground of being, non-dual ground of awareness in which the subject of awareness and the object of awareness are, are um, let go of or step back from. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a progression then from conceptual self to witnessing self to this non-dual ground. I'm really intrigued by that, but maybe we'll revisit yeah. it because I know it can get complex, but yeah, personally, I'm really intrigued by yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think this is in some ways the secret sauce inside mm -hmm. of act. It's this, it takes mindfulness to another level. I yeah. would say. Um, so that's where it gets more spiritual, so to speak. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a unique quality of it, about it. Because that is what, like, what you what you're, you're talking about in terms of the being aware of thoughts, diffusing from them, stepping back, as well as the concept of self. In in a lot of 
I guess, rhetoric or, or the way that people describe it commonly, that would fall in the realm of what people usually refer to as ego, even though mm -hmm. that term is used in a way that's, that's a little diluted. But yeah, that I guess that would encompass when people say you're acting from ego or like try and not react from a place of ego. That's that's kind of what that captures, right? The thinking and, and the the concept of self that can interfere with with how you're relating with with the world and people and and I guess even your own thoughts in those kind mm -hmm. of circumstances. Yeah, and it's like um, you know, you could have a concept like, oh, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm John Freeze. I was born on such and such a day, blah, blah, blah. So that's like saying I am something, right? There's a particular mm -hmm. thing that you're right. Uh, but then if you step back from that, there's just I, like, oh, I am as a separate self. Um, so that's kind of at the root of whatever concept that you're that's outside of you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, then even that kind of root sense of a self you can go deeper than that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's kind of like the the territory, these kind of gradations, I guess you would that's say. That's the Jedi level, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You yeah, work exactly. up to Jedi level mastery with the <laughs> non-dual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so then there's two more. Um, one is values. Um, so in act, they'll say um, there's not a preset list of values. It's you work, the therapist and the client work together to, to get in touch with and clarify what are the values that the client has. Um, there are some general values that seem to keep coming up um, for, that seem to be, most people have them. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, different life areas that um, are important to you, right? So mm -hmm. it could be like family, education, job, uh, relationship, uh, health and wellness, recreation, spirituality, service work. So these would be like different life areas where you um, you clarify, oh, these are areas that are important for me. Um, and so they're kind of like overall principles or overall kind of life directions that you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then related to that is the sixth process, which is um, committed action. So committed action would be that you're taking action on behalf of your values. So you could say, okay, well, I have a value of education. And so then a committed action could be, oh, I want to go to college and um, I want to get this such and such a degree, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be the action you take on behalf of the value. Um, so the flip side would be that you're not in touch with your values. You you don't have a clear values. Um, or sometimes you don't have a good balance between your different values. Um, it can be kind of unbalanced. Mm -hmm. And then with the committed action, then it would be, it's hard for you to take action on behalf of the values. Um, or yeah, you're getting caught up in actions that are going against your values. Um, so that would be like the flip side of the committed action. Mm -hmm. How, because I think this is like the notion of values is like something that people probably connect to a lot and mm -hmm. the reality of it can be harder to discern. Like how, 
how would someone so there are two two related things to this like one is how does someone discern an authentic value compared to you mentioned con- conditioning with like Pavlov's dog, like conditioning that we've had socially or through our families or, or through our, you know, our friends values that we've kind of, we, we think that we have compared to, to a true value. Like how would you discern that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing to think about is like um, traditionally, whatever society you're in, like, a lot of times the religion of the society would provide you with a set of values. Mm. Uh, And so people may have values that they've just inherited from their society. um, And they may or may not be a good fit for the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's one of the ideas of ACT is like, okay, we want to not just assume a certain set of values and then that that you just have to accept it, right? So this idea that you are trying to organically find out, you know, what really rings true for me versus what doesn't ring true. Um, but having said that, you know, the list I just gave of family, education, work, those tend to be fairly universal and not mm-hmm. doesn't come across as some kind of dogmatic imposition of something. It's more, oh yeah, most people have these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I would say when you're actually working with somebody, I think it's um, a question of what feels really alive for the person, what feels like just naturally um, something that's resonating with them, that it's like they feel it deeply in their body. When they talk about it, they have a fair amount of energy around it. Mm. Um, they, they'll keep coming back to it. Um, so I think that's one part of it. And then another part is the tricky part of you know, is that something authentic coming from your core or is that an internalized habit that you have that you may not agree with, but it's, it's been internalized. And so it's operating, it's influencing you Mm -hmm. and it's hard to become aware of like, oh, is this, do I agree with this or not? Where did this come from? Um, So I think that's the challenge is you know what resonates and then if something does resonate is it resonating in a good way or is Mm. it more like something that you've become convinced that you have to pay attention to this even though it may not be what you really want to do i guess as well that's like part of the examination process because if you don't do this work and, and it remains unexamined that's when it will be an unconscious acting on on values that haven't been examined whereas the examination will hopefully reveal the 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 truth what stays if you kind of um yeah dig dig through it a little bit um as and the other question i had around values was what if you have seemingly conflicting values or or you know the idea of acting in accordance to them Mm -hmm. if you're in a situation where you have two two similar weighted values that actually require a different action so you're almost then making a decision between why value um education like education might mean i've got to move to a different city and leave my relationships behind um but if i prioritize my relationships i might not have that opportunity in in terms of education is there a process there as well in terms of 
discerning when to choose some value over another so in, in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think the the processes interrelate with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you have like two kind of competing values, um, then you could work with it in terms of uh, acceptance and cognitive diffusion, right? So right, you could yeah. be, okay, I have a value around education. Um, and so then the therapist could say, okay, well, you know, just kind of think about it for a little bit, this, the idea of the value of education. Okay. And then the therapist can ask, okay, now, where do you feel that in your body? Um, get in touch with it as sensation in your body. Um, and then also, you know, what are the thought patterns? Um, are the thought patterns that you're just grabbing onto? Or mm -hmm. is it like, oh, it's a thought pattern that you're able to be aware of? And, you know, do you agree or disagree with it? Um, what's it doing for you? How, how is it working for you or not? Um, so through acceptance and cognitive diffusion, you can kind of get in touch with it in such a way that you're letting go of any kind of reactions around it and you're just trying to get in touch with it as it is. Um, so I think sometimes just kind of becoming more clearly understanding the value is one way of just being clear what is it um and then okay so if you have two values you could do a kind of similar process for both of those things um and then it gets into weighing the which one has more weight than the other mm -hmm. um, and so that's i think a process of just kind of having to sit with it or be with it over a certain period of time um so kind of trusting in the organic process. Okay, if I'm just being with it in a clear way, um, letting it just kind of cook or letting it mm -hmm. like a chicken sitting on an egg. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, over time, what seems to feel like it's the more important one or has the more weight to it? Um, and or, you know, oh, is there some way to you know, okay, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on the value that is more important, but I'll still have a little bit of time to do the other one. Mm. Um, or it could be, okay, I, I it feels like this is the one I want to do. Let me start the process and see what it's like. As I start the process, does it still seem like that or does it change or not? Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, so I think it's just a combination of getting in touch with it and allowing your, like I, the Buddhist terminology I say is like your store consciousness or mm -hmm. allow your unconscious or your store consciousness to percolate it um, and let it kind of cook or get clear. So that can happen through just meditation and then also, you know, just kind of talking with somebody, talking about it. Um and so usually over time, it just kind of becomes clear. Um, but yeah, it could be what becomes clear is, oh, this is a tough decision and it's kind of messy and it's a hard one, you know? <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, what I really like about this as well, like <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's revealing the, like you, you mentioned the interrelation and the kind of complex system of psychology, the way that, yeah sometimes it is a case of allowing 
through that psychological flexibility, allowing something else to emerge, another solution. And I guess to use that flip side, the rigidity would be like black or white thinking, okay, well, I'm choosing this, this thing, committing to it, going all out, and then not necessarily adapting to change. And um, maybe also noticing, you mentioned the thoughts, like certain thoughts or, or feelings of fear or anxiety that can lead to impatience and like rushing into a decision. And um, yeah, I like that, how it, how it kind of captures that that interrelation as well um were you gonna add yeah well just so if you're working with something a lot of times it's like okay well you know if i get down to the level of sensation and emotion you know what's what's going on at that level mm -hmm. uh yeah and is, is there something i'm avoiding or or is there something i'm trying to grab onto and then um so a lot of times that's that's the work is being with that and kind of um processing that um so that's like and when you deal with that kind of under underneath level stuff it tends to help things resolve or like become more clear mm. yeah because it, it also what i like about this it points to the tendency that we have and i say we just i guess in the west and maybe men more than women at times, but to, to try and just problem solve and fix immediately. So it kind of, it kind of counters that with the, okay, well, sometimes the actual solution just isn't ready yet. It's not, it's not emerged. So the patience, the awareness is the, the practice in that moment rather than, I guess some, um, maybe first second wave approaches would be more like well just look at your thoughts and just try and understand what distortions are there lacking that that different approach of awareness and and, and um trust i guess in that in that process maybe that's a bit arbitrary how i describe that but <laughs> it seems it Actually, seems in the, to have that in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy um they distinguish between the problem-solving mode of mind and the being mode of mind. Mm -hmm. And they say the problem-solving mode of mind is good for the external world. Like, oh, the example they'll give is like, oh, I look at the door and the paint, the paint is kind of chipping off. It needs to be repainted. Okay, so I know what to do. I go to the store, I get the paint, I come back and I do it. Um, versus, oh, I'm trying to make a decision. Do I want to go to college or not go to college uh and then you know how does that relate with my relationship mm -hmm. um, so that's like an internal thing that you can't use the same uh you can't use the problem solving mode of mind it's not something where like oh i just need to do this this and this and then i'll you know, you know. <laughs> but, um, new liquor paint that's it job done right <laughs> and go to college uh, they say the being mode of mind is like, oh, you have to be with the sensations, you have to be with the emotions, you have to let go of the conceptual mind trying mm -hmm. to figure something. Um, and so it's that being mode of mind then that allows you to be with it and allow things to organically process. So it's like two two different processes and two two sets of rules, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's like you have to learn how to use the being mode of mind and how it's different from the problem solving mode of mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It It's nice as well. It, it reminds me of the power of 
cognitive behavioral therapy like I, I started that a long time ago in, in terms of self-help and then had some therapy around that and found it really useful in terms of not with, with the behavioral therapy often like you, you, you mentioned thoughts are framing a situation in one way but usually if unexamined it could be that we're just trying to avoid a certain emotion or move towards a certain emotion that's not actually authentic whereas act addresses that by saying connect to sensation but also connect to your values so you can sense that direction you're moving in is also kind of coherent and not um yeah not not avoiding not indulging like like you mentioned i, I like that um because mm-hmm. I, I think as well i had a conversation the other day about uh cognitive behavioral therapy and i sometimes like forget the behavioral element <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. st- stuck on like the oh change your cognition but the, the point is then you behave differently if you're thinking and differently your emotional landscape changes as well so it really is like yeah it also with that like acting upon that that value acting upon that um more reasoned or logical interpretation etc um did we cover the with that we covered the six mm-hmm. um components yeah. Did you cover both the both both sides as well, like the positive and negative? Mm-hmm. You, you're happy with, with that. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll move on to the beginning of the synthesis. I know you touched upon a few different Buddhist principles, but um, more more specifically, which principles and practices you've connected with this this model? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So when I took this class and I learned about ACT, uh, it kind of clicked. I'm like, oh, that. I correlate this with this, I correlate this with this. I correlate, so it was kind of, it just kind of snapped in place at, at like these different Buddhist teachings and practices that I learned. When I learned to act, it kind of just crystallized or organized these things. Um, and then, so then over time using it in counseling practice, and then also as I was working on my dissertation, kind of going deeper into what are these teachings and where do they come from? Um, over time, it just became more solidified or more robust what mm-hmm. the correlations were. Um, so yeah, so so for each uh, of the act processes, then I have uh, Buddhist teachings. Most of them are coming from the early Buddhist uh, yogic teachings that comes from the Samyutta Nikaya and the Pali Canon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one exception with self as context. Um, I use, uh, some Mahayana Yogacara teachings, but the other, uh, five processes I'm using, using early Buddhist yogic, uh, teachings. Um, so, and then for, so there's teachings and there's also specific meditation practice that, uh, I also have related to it as well. So. For contact with the present moment, I use the teaching on the four establishments of mindfulness. And so that's like a yogic contemplative structure that Mm -hmm. the Buddha taught. Um, And you can find a similar structure in early Taoism and also early Hindu yoga. So contact with the present moment, the Buddha taught the four establishments as four uh, places to focus your awareness. So, um, the first one is Kaya in Pali, which is the physical body. 
And so you can be in touch with that when you can think of your body as made of the four elements. And so you're getting in touch with um, body sensation as the four elements. So like earth element is hard to soft. Um, fire element is hot to cold. Um, air element is movement to stillness. Um, and then the water element would be like the experience of fluidity in your body. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that's Kaya, the four elements. And then it also relates to, uh, body posture, like, you know, sitting, standing, walking, laying down. Um, if you're doing practice, you know, what posture is your body in? Okay. Then the next one is Vedana, which translates as body sensation. And so you're still aware of sensation, but now you're paying attention. Is the sensation pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? So um, still aware of sensation, but instead of focusing on it as four elements, now mm -hmm. you're focusing on is it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Okay, then you have chitta, which is the heart-mind. And so that's awareness itself that tends to be radiating from the heart center. Um, and then, so you're aware of awareness and then you're aware, is there any movement within the awareness such as, you know, you're involved in thinking, um, focusing on some external phenomena of some kind. Okay, and then Dhamma is the teaching and in early Buddhism, it tends to mean the, the 12 links of dependent origination. And so that tends to be describing the process of rebirth. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is you're aware of your body, the body sensation and the heart mind within the deeper context of the 12 links. And so then when, when the Buddha is talking about meditation practice or when he's talking about, um, you know, being aware of what's going on. Um, again, it tends to mean, um, so, so, so what I add to this then is a specific, I add a specific meditation practice that goes with this. Um, so the practice, the first one that I learned when I was in college is the Zen meditation where you are counting the breath while you focus on the belly. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting in your meditation posture. Um, then you're aware of the sensations in the belly. So you're aware of it as four elements and pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, and then you're counting the breath. And so the counting is giving you a steady thought to help you not be carried away by other thoughts. Mm -hmm. So the counting also involves your heart mind. Um, and then you're just... So you're counting the breath in the belly. You're aware of your whole body and you're aware of your heart mind as well as, as it relates to the counting. Um, and so that practice, that's one of the practices I use then to help be in contact with the present moment. Um, so just to summarize, then contact with the present moment, you have this yogic structure. Uh, you're using that to be in touch with the present moment. Um, so then not being in touch with the present moment would be that you're not in touch with that contemplative structure. Mm -hmm. uh, you're lost in thoughts or you're not aware of your posture. You're not aware of your breathing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you're not in touch with it.
Because we, I know we, in our previous conversation, we spoke about derealization and like dissociation as quite a common trauma symptom. And mm-hmm. it seems like this addresses that, like to, to bring yourself using the, the body or, or, or the body being a, a vessel to, to contact with the present moment more immediately than the mind often. And, and it's a, a good pathway into that deeper presence. Yeah, and it's um, when we talk about the other processes, this will kind of become more clear. But it's mm-hmm. it's uh, my my sense is like there's two two channels of experience. Uh, one channel is body sensation, mm-hmm. and the other channel is uh, cognitive activity or cognition. Mm-hmm. So if you're aware of your breathing in the body, that's like the sensation channel. Um, and then if you're aware of awareness itself and thought, that's like the cognition channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this contemplative structure is helping you be in touch with both uh, channels. Um, and so then that's what's bringing you into the present moment, basically. Mm-hmm. That your present yeah. your present moment experiences these two channels and you're being in touch with it. Yeah. Yeah, because that that's something, you know, I, I find frequently when i feel super present i'm thinking (laughs) which goes against like what the the assumption is like that you know this idea of being thoughtless or or the mind being completely clear which is beautiful but for me that's much less common but there are times where actually the exactly what you say the presence is being present to the i guess the non-dual experience of all the, the the sensory input and the thought and the sensation and i just find a good example is if i'm on a, a run and i'm having that deep connection to my body and my environment and yet i start having creative thoughts that feel embodied they feel like they're embodying me in the present more than than taking me away it's strange because i used to judge that a lot as oh, I'm, I'm caught up in thinking but it's much different from when i'm like neurotic and I'm thinking a lot and just feel that as a barrier to, to the present. So there's, yeah, I think maybe that maybe I'm mis, misjudging that, but I, I sense that, as you say, bringing in the being present isn't not thinking, I think is what I'm pointing to. Like sometimes it's just being present to the entirety of it all. Uh, and with, with that distance, like you mentioned with the the principles as well. Yeah, it's kind of like you're in touch with like two origin points or two origin mm-hmm. sources. Uh, so one origin source is the sensory experience, and then mm-hmm. another origin source is uh, the source where thoughts are emerging. Mm-hmm. So if you're staying there at the origin place, uh, you can be aware of the thoughts arising without getting carried away by them. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, a lot of times you'll have really good thoughts <laughs> like, uh, because you're just there. Yeah. You're aware of when they're arising and you can, you can be in touch with their quality, but at the same time, you're not losing touch with the sensory experience mm-hmm. and you can be aware of how, how are the thoughts resonating in my body? Um, so it's like the thought is not just kind of in your head. It's more you're experiencing it as it resonates with your whole body mm. and um, this kind of deeper intuitive awareness. So 
yeah, it's like, you know, you can feel, oh, this, this has substance and weight mm -hmm. uh, versus this is just kind of a thought without much substance and weight. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frequently like in, in those kind of states, a lot of aliveness or like, yeah. even if it, it can feel like a commentary and interpretation, but there's a different, different quality. I like that you, how you describe that. And it does feel like a lucidity to the thoughts that appear in a way that is different and almost as if when, when like they're transcendent, they, they transcend the self. And that's something I, I found like the biggest shift internally that I've had is going from that being super neurotic <laughs> to mm -hmm. be more of a creative person. And I still oscillate those two quite frequently, but when in a creative space, the quality transcends the self. So it's not so isolating. And, and it's almost as if thought rather than existing in, in mind. And I know we're talking in this context of interconnections as well. It, it could be that there's a greater, a greater mind, a greater source of thought that's connected to when you're present and mm -hmm. in those, those states as well. Yeah. And I, I've kind of started thinking about this recently that we, we experience thought as words. And that tends to kind of be in our head because it's like we're hearing it as like mm. as if it's spoken out loud. Mm -hmm. um, and so then there's this habit of identifying with the thoughts as like, okay, that's that's me, that's my conceptual mind. Um, and so then there's this feeling of, oh, I'm the voice in my head and I've identified with that, like that's who I am. And mm -hmm. then I'm kind of observing the rest of my body from this you know, command center up in my brain or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so that's different from, oh, you get in touch with your breathing down and down in the body and the belly. Uh, you, you kind of step back from the conceptual mind. So you drop down more into this intuitive awareness that's in the heart mind. Um, and so then you are aware of thought, but you're not identified with it and you're not like, identified as like an ego self up in the head basically mm -hmm. um so it's kind of that being able to drop down into the body and have that deeper witnessing awareness that i think is what allows you to be in touch with thought without the kind of habit of then identifying with it and um being with it up in the head mm -hmm. yeah so yeah. i think that's one of the key things about this contemplative structure, which you can find it in Taoism and you can also find it in Hindu yoga, um, is that it is really, it is, it tends to be a ground up thing where you start with the sensation, uh, and then you work your way up to the awareness. Um, and it tends to have this overall effect of getting you into your body and being more an embodied, uh, an embodied intuitive awareness. And so then the the thoughts are still happening, but you're experiencing it in a very different way. Mm -hmm. um, and then yes, you can you can tell the difference between when you're aware of a thought in the present moment and it's resonating with your present moment experience, versus you're getting carried away by the thought and you've lost touch with the rest of your present moment experience. Yeah, that that yeah, the flip side of yeah, you just summed up really nicely, like how it mm -hmm. it's almost like certain thought like I know I'm, I'm someone as a writer and I talk far too mm -hmm. much as well like I'm I'm very very verbal so I have that that strong 
um, you know, part of my brain or just part of my consciousness that is very well practiced verbally, in, like inwardly with, with thinking, like you mentioned, and also just the yeah, outwardly. And I wonder as well in, in those moments, sometimes the, rather than that neurotic thought centered around the self or ego, sometimes the verbal experience is actually just an interpretation of something that is them kind of moving through that that verbal concept or, or, or linguistic kind of translation even if it's just like wow this is cool or oh wow i feel i feel really relaxed right now it's like maybe that's going from the body maybe it's coming from there's a deeper sense or a deeper knowing that is then translated verbally um yeah i like that as a as a description in terms of the difference yeah it's like yeah. kind of like a thought just arising from this intuitive awareness as opposed to the thought being the result of a logical train of thoughts where mm -hmm. you're actively thinking and you arrive at this thought because of mm -hmm. that logical process it's more like oh it's just something that arises mm -hmm. uh, it's there um and it, it can be logical but it, it's it's yeah it's less involved with like using your willpower and um I mean, of course, yeah, using logic and actively thinking a thought out is has its own benefits to it. But yeah. Um, but again, the danger can be that you think that's that is the thought world as opposed to the thought can uh, arise from a deeper place. Yeah. And that's gonna always be more efficient as a process. Rationality and logic is gonna be more efficient if you're conscious of it and you can you have distance from the process of, of thinking through rather than just being caught up and then trying to do it from that entanglement. <laughs> yeah. Because you yeah. can actually enhance logic through these practices rather than neglect it or overlook it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we yeah, let's, let's, yeah, because I'm trying to keep the structure <laughs> in my mind now and, and tangent, but um, yeah. So that was related to the present. Like with the present moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the second one, moving on. Okay. Um, so again, there's not any set order, right? It's kind of, and they're all interconnected. So I'm just, I'm going to, if you, if we talked about this another time, I might use a different order, but mm -hmm. um, um, I want to shift to uh, committed action. So in Buddhism, the understanding of what action is, you have to look at the 12 links of dependent origination to understand what is in the early Buddhist teaching, what is understood, um, what does action mean? Um, so the 12 links describes the mechanics of rebirth, basically. And inside of the 12 links, there's two behavior patterns, you could say. Um, and one of those behavior patterns deals with action um, and usually it means like physical or verbal action, but it could also mean uh, mental action, but mm -hmm. more it means physical or verbal. Um, and so then, so I'm going to just take a subsection of the 12 links to talk about that. Um, so you have the link of contact, which in Pali is pasa, and contact means there's contact between a sense base and a sense object. So you you hear something with your ears, you see something with your eyes, you smell something with your nose, you taste something with your tongue, 
you touch something with your body and that could be an external touch or two parts of your body inside touching each other. Um, or you come into contact with a thought. So your, your mind consciousness connects with some kind of mental phenomena. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's contact. And then the contact gives rise to sensation, which is Vedana. And as I said before, the sensation could be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay, then the sensation gives rise to craving. So then I'll, I'll kind of, I'll say it the way the Buddha says it, and then I'll give a more neutral way of saying it. But um, you have contact, then there's sensation, then there's craving, which is the intention to act um, based on the sensation. Mm -hmm. Then there's grasping, which is you, you, you act on it, you act on the craving. And then there's becoming, which is the embodied result of the grasping. So if I was to use more neutral terms to describe it, you would say, okay, there's, there's still contact. Then there's sensation. Then there's intention slash emotion. Uh, and the Buddhist term for that would be Sankara. So mm -hmm. you have Vedana, and then there's Sankara, which comes out of the Vedana. So that's intention slash emotion. Then there's action, which would, in, in Pali, is Kama. Sanskrit is Karma. So uh, action here means there's an intention, emotion, and then you act on it. Okay, and then once you act on it, then there is becoming. The Pali word is Bhava, so that's the result. So this is a behavior pattern. Um, and so an example could be, um, you know, I'm talking to you now and then I feel my throat is dry. Um, so I'm in contact with dry sensations in my throat. It's a little bit unpleasant. So then I have the intention, oh, I wanna get a drink of water. Okay, so if I actually go and get a drink of water, I drink the water, that would be the acting. And then, then there's the result. Oh, I drank the water. Uh, now my thirst is quenched. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of the behavior pattern or the behavior chain, right? Um, another one could be um, I'm at work. Uh, somebody says something mean to me. So I hear something. It causes unpleasant sensation in my body. Uh, that gives rise to anger and the desire to say something mean back to the person. Then if I act on it, I actually say it. Mm -hmm. And then now I experience the result of having said that. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be unwholesome becoming because the unwholesome intention, emotion of anger arose, and then I acted on it. And then I had the unwholesome result. Um, you could have, okay, I'm at work. Somebody says something mean to me. There's unpleasant sensation in my body. It gives rise to the desire to say something mean back to the person. Um, but because I'm a Buddhist, I recognize, oh, uh, that's an unwholesome intention emotion. If I act on it, it's not going to be good. So I go back to the sensation. I go back to my breathing. I'm aware of the sensation. I let go of the anger, and I'm just coming back to the sensation. I'm sitting with that for a little bit, and then another intention emotion comes up. This time it's 
a wholesome one of oh just let it go don't respond you know mm -hmm. or oh say something but say something that's constructive not something that's out of anger right so either i you know i i let go i don't act on it um and so then there's I'm reborn as someone who didn't act on it, basically. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. Or I act on it, but it's a wholesome thing. So I'm reborn as someone who acted on it as a wholesome thing. Mm -hmm. um, so action then is seen as something that's part of this behavior chain. And the action is mainly caused by intention emotion that's arising from the body sensation. So it's, it's, you could say it's like sensory behavioral instead of cognitive behavioral. Mm -hmm. It's like there's body sensation and that's, um, that's really driving the behavior even more than the thoughts. Mm -hmm. The thoughts can give rise to sensation in my body. And so it's the sensation in the body that is giving rise to the emotion, which has an intention inside of it. And that's what's giving rise to um the action or the behavior so so that's just saying okay that's how that's how buddhism would define action mm -hmm. um and then so one of the core teachings then would be um the five precepts uh which is kind of the foundational ethical code in buddhism um, so no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no false, no false or harmful speech, and no addiction to intoxicants. So you could say that's kind of like your five uh, guardrails of action. Um, mm -hmm. No matter what situation I'm in, if I'm in touch with something that's making me want to break a precept, then I have to be like, hey, wait a minute, there's probably some unwholesome intention emotion here. And if I act on it, maybe there'll be some short term high, but it's going to lead to a crash. Mm -hmm. So I need to step back and be like, okay, I got to get in touch with my breathing and be aware of my body sensation. So I can hold the emotion instead of being overwhelmed by it and acting out on it. Um, so then so then so the the five precepts are kind of the guardrails of how to avoid negative action. Um, and then working with the intention emotion, uh, working with the sensation, then the, the general idea is you're wanting to cultivate wholesome states of body and mind, and you want to act on wholesome states and you want to let go of unwholesome states, or you want to metabolize them or transform them into wholesome states. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that that gets into meditation practice as well as the precepts itself. Um, but instead of it being more meditation where you're just sitting, it's, oh, you're in your daily life and you're involved in actions. And so you're assessing, is this action a good action or not? Should I do it or not? Mm -hmm. um, so you're paying attention basically to this behavior chain. Um, and you're using that to help you um, the idea is you want to steer the process of rebirth in a wholesome direction and you want to steer it away from an unwholesome direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, was re it really talks to the power as well, like the transformative power of mm -hmm. mindfulness or, or being aware and, and not 
being responsible rather than reactive, which is crucial. Um, mm-hmm. How, in terms of the the dynamic of wholesome and unwholesome and metabolizing to more towards wholesomeness, mm-hmm. how would you relate that to validating difficult emotions? Like say I'm in a situation, like the example you gave, someone says something that's hurtful, and anger arises. I know one of my tendencies for sure is wanting that to be validated in a dynamic. Like, mm-hmm. no, do you not understand why I'm angry? Like this, I, I'm I I have reason to feel angry. And obviously there are times where I, I respond unwholesomely and maybe say, you know, I'm um passive aggressive or I say something hurtful, times where I can be with the anger. Um and respond in a more mature or caring way but how how would you relate that metabolization with i i use the term validation i i guess it's it's acceptance really isn't it if you're validating something you're accepting mm-hmm. that it's it's got a value there but um mm-hmm. yeah yeah interested yeah. to know you yeah so again this gets into how the processes interrelate so um when you're talking about action and you're trying to evaluate something then you're starting you're engaging in the practice of acceptance as it relates to that mm-hmm. action so they interrelate yeah so when we talk about acceptance we'll we'll say more about it but mm-hmm. um um so yeah so you're looking at this chain of behavior and so you, when something comes up then you want to be aware of okay how is this fitting in the chain so you know what was the contact that brought it up uh what are the sensations that are in the body what's the emotion so yeah, when the emotion comes up, you want to be able to recognize the emotion. Um, you don't want to suppress it, but you also don't want to act on it um, until you're a, until you're confident. Oh yeah, this is something good to act on versus mm-hmm. this is not something good to act on. Um, and so then, so an emotion, the the Pali word would be sankara, and that has a lot of different meanings in Buddhism. Um, but in the context of this behavior chain, it tends to mean intention slash emotion. And so a sankara is made up of body sensation and then a story. So if you have anger, you recognize, okay, uh, anger is arising. Okay, so how do I feel it in my body as body sensation? And then what is the story that's going with it, mm-hmm. right? So that tends to mean like a thought pattern of some kind or, you know, a cognitive stance of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, So first it's just recognizing, okay, it's the emotion is there and I'm recognizing it. Um, So you can say to yourself, oh, I'm angry. Anger is happening right now. Um, um, If you're with another person, depending on the situation, you could say, oh, I'm having anger right now. So you're just recognizing, oh, anger is happening but it's not like you're acting on it um, in a way that would be negative. Mm-hmm. It's more just like, oh, you're recognizing the anger is there. Depends on some people, they can ride with that. Some people might freak out about it. So it's better not to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm angry. Oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so then the trick is how to be with the anger without adding another layer of complexity on top of it like Mm -hmm. oh i shouldn't feel the anger or it's i'm bad because i'm feeling it or oh i'm right to feel the anger i should feel the anger and yeah 
<laughs> that would just be with it as, okay, this is anger. Um, and then what, what Buddhism tends to say is, oh, be with it as sensation more than the story. Be in touch with the story enough to know what the story is, but then focus your attention more on the sensation because that tends to be more stable and it helps you be more in touch with what's happening while at the same time um, having more space around it so that mm. you're not pushed to act on it, um, and, but you're also not repressing it. You can just be with it. Okay, and so then you're being with the anger, and then, yes, I think you can you can distinguish between healthy anger versus unhealthy anger, right? Um, healthy anger is the amount of anger you have is uh, it fits with the situation. It's not like an, a, a, an over amount of anger, like mm-hmm. making a mountain out of a molehill. It's like okay, yeah, this it's a it's it's a, it fits with what's happening. Um, and then you want to be, is there any judgment inside of it? Like, am I saying, oh, this person is an evil person or, you know, some kind of judgment layer? If there's a judgment layer, that's usually not going to help. <laughs> it's usually unproductive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm superior, they're inferior, you know? Mm-hmm. Or if you're angry at yourself, then you're you're like, you're judging yourself. You know, if there's that judgment thing in there, that usually means it's not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to keep sitting with it. And then if you get to, oh, I need to express a boundary. Like when so-and-so did this, it made me feel suffering. I didn't like it. I don't want them to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so That's like a clear boundary thing where you're helping the other person not cause suffering and you're helping yourself not experience suffering from the person. So then that's a clear expression of anger that's more, in a sense, a way, it's like a version of compassion that Mm -hmm. um, it's like setting a boundary. Um, But sometimes the anger is just, oh, I'm angry and I don't, it's, it's, if I express it, it's not going to help. And so I just got to let it go. You know, Mm -hmm. I got to like, let it go back down without acting on it. Um, and so then it's like, you know, whatever strategy you need to do to do that. Um, and then, so sometimes you kind of have to use your rational mind to just explain to yourself or the other person what it is you need to explain, Mm -hmm. um, just as a way to negotiate the situation. Um, because it's like, yeah, the, the the anger that you have is not worth acting on. It's not worth expressing. You may not have fully, it's, you know, it's, it may still be there, but you don't want to, you know, it's not going to be helpful. So then, mm-hmm. so sometimes some rational explanation is involved just to negotiate the situation. Yeah. And and the wisdom as well of, of knowing that in terms of that kind of chain of behavior, of knowing when strong emotions are present, you're likely not as as rational or you you, you mm. might say something that you gave the good example of allowing things to cool and then a better solution comes up so even if you kind of buy yourself a bit of time or um yeah don't it's like how thought and behavior adapts to strong emotion like when anger is present 
the rationality reduces it, it becomes a lot more argumentative potentially or, or um yeah filter through judgment I, I like that as a as a, a way of describing that um that mm-hmm. approach to difficult emotions and stuff like that and so yeah so a lot of it's just it's like just going back to previous links in the chain mm-hmm. but you want to get back to the sensation itself and then be aware okay it's is it an unpleasant sensation if it's unpleasant is there aversion towards it, right? I'm trying mm-hmm. to get rid of it. And if I let go of the aversion and I just come back to the unpleasant sensation, then out of that can come a more authentic uh, response as opposed yeah. to a reaction. Yeah. So that tends to be something that feels more centered, more grounded. Um, so a lot of, so so this idea of this behavior chain and these links um you're trying to be in touch with what's my intention and you want to be in touch with it as sensation in the body. Cause a lot of time you can have an intention that sounds good in your head, but when you actually act on it, it doesn't work out good. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so a lot of time it's really like, Oh, how do I feel it in my body as sensation in the body? And that's a more true indicator of what is my actual intention. Mm-hmm. What's going to be the result if I act on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's through practice, trial and error that you you figure out, oh yeah, this feels good in my body. And when I act on it, it turns out good. Or, oh, this feels like there's still some reaction happening here. Usually when I act on this, it turns out not good. Yeah. <laughs> the example that comes to mind for me, like just to, to be honest about my own mechanisms is making a joke. Mm-hmm about mm-hmm. the situation when I can actually still still feel some tension so I know there's a bit of sting to that joke yeah and then, uh that I like the whole it's just a joke thing is awful and I I, I hate to contribute to that in my own way at times but yeah, yeah I, I feel that and I'm oh, actually even though I was making light of the situation yeah I, I, you were saying that and I was relating it to the times when I joke from a feeling of lightness and the times where I joke where I'm actually there is still a bit of sting I want it I want it to land a certain way and yeah, the trial and error of knowing when not to do that because it doesn't, it never goes well. <laughs> yeah, and then some, then the person gets pissed and then you're like, oh, why are you pissed? It was just a joke. You know? Exactly, yeah, and then it just fuels the... <laughs> yeah. Which is actually really manipulative. There you go. These are my mechanisms. Yeah. So. <laughs> but that, that would make a great like stand-up routine of someone talking about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's... I, I think it's quite common. Like, I'm sure most most people have already been on the receiving yeah. end of that, and and it, yeah, it is a it is a difficult behavior to to respond to, and and I wonder if it is linked to the intuition of of feeling where that person's coming from. So mm-hmm. knowing like, okay, this idea of it being a joke is actually like a conceptual excuse from a, a, a barbed um, insult or whatever, and yeah, yeah. not to not to like deep to go too far down the deconstruction and and stuff like that but yeah it does yeah, it does give like the, the two channels like the sensation channel and then the cognitive channel mm-hmm. and yeah mm-hmm. the cognitive can try to overlay the sensation channel and think it knows what it's doing <laughs> yeah yeah that's true oh no i'm fine i'm completely calm i'm just joking man. Like... <laughs> yeah um where are we at in the model? I'm conscious of of, of the time. I know we've oh, still yeah. got a few, sure. um, yeah, a few a few steps. 
Okay, so so that committed action, the five precepts are like the guardrails, and then you're in touch with this behavior chain um, that's inside the links of dependent origination, and then the general idea is you're you're trying to steer the process in a wholesome direction mm -hmm. um, and steer it away from an unwholesome direction. Um, so then if you get into the eightfold path, that kind of gets deeper into being aware of the process and steering it in the right direction and, um, um, you know, cultivating wholesome states and uh, abandoning unwholesome states. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so that's, so that's kind of the gist of the committed action. Okay, so then if we get into... Um, acceptance and cognitive diffusion, um, you're still working with the links of dependent origination, but now it's focusing more on the internal experience like that you would experience in meditation versus like out in the world acting. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, oh yeah, I just want to say what uh, for the committed action, one a practice that goes with the committed action would be rest, the recitation of the five precepts. So that would be a regular practice you do in Buddhism that you recite the five precepts and you kind of check yourself in terms of how am I doing with that? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an actual practice. And then the Eightfold Path, of course, is also a practice. Um, but I won't spend a lot of time there because when I get into acceptance and diffusion, that kind of gets into some of the Eightfold Path. Mm -hmm. But I just want to clarify that each process i have a practice that goes with it yeah okay so so for the practice of acceptance um the practice that i put into that is the body scan meditation and um, mainly i learned this from the goenka vipassana lineage which is a burmese vipassana lineage and they specialize in the body scan practice so um so when I talk about acceptance, I mainly mean I'm working with body sensation and emotion. And then when I talk about cognitive diffusion, then I'm mainly talking about working with uh, thoughts. Mm -hmm. So acceptance for me is mainly, yeah, sensation and emotion. And then using a body scan practice to work with the sensation and emotion. So... Um, so again, when we look at the links, you have contact, and then there's sensation, and then there's emotion that comes up from the sensation. So in the um, Goenka body scan practice, the, the first thing they have you do is awareness of breathing at the nose. And so you're aware of sensation at the nose and the upper lip. And the idea is that's giving you a neutral to pleasant sensation to focus on mm -hmm. as a way to help you have a stable awareness and help you um, kind of calm the body and mind down. So you want to start with neutral to pleasant sensations to help stabilize the body and mind. Okay, so if you do a you do like a 10-day Goenka retreat, uh, the first three days, awareness of breathing up the nose. Okay, then... Um, the remaining seven days, you're mainly doing a body scan practice. You're just systematically moving your awareness through the body. Um, if you get to a place where you're feeling kind of overwhelmed, you can go back to the breathing at the nose to calm it down or um, relax it. Um, okay, so then you're in the body scan practice. And so, they again, they teach uh, two 
part two elements of it, you could say. Uh, one is, again, you're aware of the body sensation as the four elements. Mm -hmm. um, and they even talk about your body is made of kalapas, which are like tiny little particles. Mm -hmm. And each particle has inside of it the four elements. Um, and so we're, you're paying attention to your sensations as the four elements. And this goes all the way back to Lady Sayada, who initiated the lineage. Um, and then you're aware of sensation as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that tends to be what um, Ubekin and Goenka seem to have added in. So those are two teachers in the lineage. Um, so you're moving your awareness through the body. You're aware of the sensations. And then you're just being aware, um, is it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? And how, how do I experience it as the four elements? Okay. Then as you're doing the body scan, you're paying attention. When you have a pleasant sensation, um, does any craving come up from it? Mm -hmm. Like, are you trying to grab onto something? Um, if you have unpleasant sensation, is there any aversion towards it? Are you trying to push it away? Um, if you have neutral sensation, do you space out? You're not aware of it. So you're, you're always focusing on um, the sensation and then are any of these, uh, what they would say, sankaras, are any sankaras coming up from the sensation? So mm -hmm. the sensation is the Vedana, and then the Sankara would be the reactions that could come up. So the reactions tend to be emotions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have unpleasant sensation, you could have fear, you could have sadness, you could have anger uh, coming up. Um, if there's pleasant sensation, uh, you could have craving coming up, um, trying to grab onto it. So the practice is, if you notice a reaction come up, you recognize the reaction. And so again, the, the sankara is made up of sensation and a story. So you're recognizing, okay, there's this sensation and story that's there. Mm -hmm. And then you shift the attention away from the story back to just the sensation itself. So that's the practice is aware of sensation uh, and a, a reaction comes up you're aware of the reaction and then you bring your you shift your focus of attention back to the sensation mm -hmm. and so then the idea is you're, you're doing this systematic scan um so you will be moving through different sensations neutral pleasant unpleasant um and the idea is you don't want to stay in in any place too long you just want to keep moving through um and so then as a result what tends to happen then is you're just letting go of or you're releasing these reactions. And then you're just, you're staying with the sensations. You're letting go of the reactions. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So that, so my research, then I've compared the Goenka Vipassana with the somatic experiencing from Peter Levine. Mm -hmm. And they have a very similar theory and practice that, um, they talk about trauma as you're caught in a cycle where um, you have overwhelming sensation and then that leads to overwhelming emotion and you're carried away by the emotion and then that results in um, a reenactment of the trauma or like a flashback of the trauma. And so they say the key to getting out of that is distinguishing between the sensation and the emotion. Mm-hmm. 
focusing focusing the attention back to the sensation and then working strategically with the sensation uh, so as to let go of the emotion and metabolize the the habit energy. And then so they have strategies of um, resourcing, which is focusing on neutral to pleasant sensation first to build up the, the wholesome sensation. Um, and in counseling, that can also include the attunement between the therapist and the client as mm -hmm. part of what's helping you build the um, pleasant to neutral sensations. And then once you've got that as your foundation, then when something when you get activated, then you're aware, okay, there's unpleasant sensation. And then they do what's called pendulation, where you're alternating between the pleasant and the unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So you go back and forth between the two. And then there's titration, which is you just take in the unpleasant sensation in small doses. So you're aware of it for a little bit, and then you move away from it back to the sensation. Um, and then what will happen then is that tends to unwind the um, activated material, the, the habit pattern, which tends to be some unmetabolized experience from the past. Mm -hmm. It's been activated. And so now then you're, you're using this practice to help you um, metabolize it, basically. And so Goenka Vipassana, they would say the same thing, that you're you're basically releasing these sankharas that are stored up in your system from your past mm -hmm. experience. So you're working with the sensation uh, and the emotion. You're working with it to accept what's happening and to release or let go of uh, stored up material. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a deep dive then into these, the Goenka Vipassana as a technique and then how it correlates with the somatic experiencing. Um, so in kind of a less intense um, way, you could just say when you're doing the practice of acceptance, you're wanting to be in touch with your body sensations and your emotions. Um, and if you have sensations or emotions that feel overwhelming, then you want to use particular strategies to help you be with it mm -hmm. uh, so that you can contain it in such a way that it's not overwhelming. You can be with it and accept it. Um, and so then that usually allows you, then you can accept your experience as opposed to trying to push it away. Um, and then if there's some kind of habit energy in your experience, you can metabolize it. Mm -hmm. So that would be then, uh, yeah, acceptance. Mm -hmm. I've completely lost track of where we're at. So I trust you to, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. to, know, to know where we're going next. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, the general idea is uh, experiential avoidance would mean you don't want to be with the sensations and emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so you might go up into your head or you try to suppress it um, or you try to um, cover it up like you want to act out like, oh, I'm experiencing pain. I don't want to be with this. So I'm going to go have a few drinks. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um or the other side would be, oh, I'm experiencing the pain. It's hard for me to be with. I need to lash out, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so experiential avoidance would be that, right? Um, trying to avoid it or acting out on it in a negative mm -hmm. way. Acceptance would be that you're able to be with it and um, metabolize it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, another process then is the cognitive diffusion. Mm -hmm. And so then um, inside of the 12 links, there's another behavior chain, um, which I'll just kind of summarize it is you have awareness itself, and then there's movement within the awareness, and then that can result in getting carried away by thoughts or having your attention get distracted uh, out onto something. Um, so the most common way would be like, oh, you're in meditation, you're uh, counting the breath, and then you get carried away by your thoughts, so you lose your count, mm -hmm. you lose the breath, right? Um, so that would be cognitive fusion means you got carried away by the thoughts. Uh, cognitive defusion would be you're sitting in meditation, you're aware of a thought arising, and instead of getting carried away by it, you're you're able to let it just be there in your awareness, but you're still in touch with your breathing and your body, and you're not uh, caught in the thought. Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between being aware of a thought versus thinking a thought, basically. Um, so in the early Buddhist meditation practice, they'll talk about aware of the heart-mind, which is the citta, uh, and then they talk about liberating the heart mind, which would mean if you're identifying or attaching to something, you become aware of that as a behavior pattern. Mm -hmm. So we're still talking about behavior, but now it's at a subtle level where there's just awareness itself. And out of that awareness, uh, a volition arises and it gets caught up in some kind of phenomena. So the practice is to be aware of awareness itself. And then if there's some movement, Instead of getting caught up in it, you're letting go of it mm -hmm. and dropping back into just the awareness itself. And so uh, one of the practices you can do for that is um, a mantra practice where you're reciting a mantra coordinated with the breath. And so by picking one thought to repeat, you're staying close to the source of the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so then you can tell the difference between that thought and another thought. Um, and so then that's helping you stay at the source of thought and not get carried away by other thoughts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I also like that. Um, the really subtle, like metaphysics of like when you mentioned movement, I can relate that to meditation and uh, you can feel it, right? Like there, there's a feeling okay. to, to that movement that is really hard to describe to someone who doesn't meditate or hasn't kind of meditated on that process. And um, yeah, it's almost like there is that experiential, it's not just conceptual to say a version of it or, or, or grasping, like you can feel that. A good example, actually, is something I notice a lot might be if I'm in a situation and I have a, an impulse to check my phone, and I can mm -hmm. feel it's like I can feel the like the movement of okay, my my consciousness knows where my phone is, and then it can go like zoom. And there is there is that really subtle movement of energy on that level that when you do start to realize that the the 
embodiment of non-attachment becomes like a, a metaphysical practice rather than just a, an idea or a concept and i think that's such a breakthrough in terms of a, a practice mm-hmm. you start to um it's almost it's almost like because i notice it with, with human behavior as well we talk about a lot about resonance or dissonance or or um being drawn towards someone or, or repelled and I've noticed that as well. Like when, if I'm if I'm in certain dynamics where I can feel like I'm actually being pulled away from my center, and it's mm-hmm. really subtle, and I'm like, oh, I've got to just like get go back towards myself because I have that tendency to, to kind of lo- disconnect from myself or lose myself. Um, so yeah, that's really powerful as as a as a practice. I find to to experience what that move subtle movement is like on that level of consciousness. Yeah, and again, this like the secret sauce of act is it's got the subtle level of awareness, mm-hmm. uh, which correlates in Buddhism with, you know, you start more at the gross level of sensation and emotion that drives physical behavior, um, and then you, by working with that, then you get to the more subtle level of just awareness itself, and then movement arising within the awareness. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a subtle level of awareness to be aware of that as like a behavior pattern that's happening. Yeah. Um, and so then instead of thinking the ego is a reified thing, um, it's more, oh, it's, it's a process or a behavior pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think it's just having that kind of deeper ground of witnessing awareness that enables you to be aware of this as a pattern of behavior. Um, and so then that, yeah, then that when you become aware of the pattern, then that gives you more freedom of, um, do I want to engage with it or do I want to let go back into the kind of ground out of which the behaviors are rising? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and noticing those, yeah, like you say, those, those patterns of, of behavior, that's really, there's a huge breakthrough there when, when you notice, you know, common one, I'm sure I'm not alone in this is like, if you have an experience of shame, there can be a, a, just a strong impulse to hide or, or to to avoid, um, and as well, like I I, I know when I, I would first start practicing mindfulness, I would notice that if I felt anxious, I almost instantly went into rushing, wanting to rush through situations, talking quicker, moving quicker, trying to get through, and and starting to practice like okay, I'll slow down my breathing, I'll talk slower. I try not to rush and that actually helps the anxiety, but just these at the source, that really subtle aversion to the anxiety and like, oh, I don't like this. I'll move through it leads to actually quite macro uh, uh, behavior. Um, where are we at on, on the model? Oh, um, yeah, we still have self as context and values. Self, self as context and values. We, we started touching upon self as context with this idea of um yeah the witnessing and, yeah. and like the non-dual maybe we can we can continue with that um yeah if there's yeah, exactly more to I, explore. that's what i was thinking as well Perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah so there is kind of a organic relation between cognitive diffusion and self as concept so um cognitive fusion is when you're buying into a thought versus just being aware of the thought right okay so um Self as concept is that you're buying into a concept of self versus 
being aware of it as a concept, um, but not buying into it. Mm -hmm. So it's the same process of cognitive diffusion, but in this case, the thought is the thought about self as opposed to a thought about something else. Mm -hmm. So the thought about self has its own kind of unique quality to it that kind of differentiates it from other thoughts. Um, so that kind of is one reason why it's in a separate category. And then also, like we're saying, when you're doing the cognitive diffusion practice, it tends to lead to getting in touch with the witnessing self or a witnessing awareness. And so then that's another reason why it's given its own process. Because um, mm -hmm. it, it uh, ACT wants to further um, unpack what it is, what that is, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, with um, before we move on with that, like... Huh? the buying into process yeah like we were talking about that distancing mm -hmm. it's essentially you don't even realize that you just you've identified right like you it, it's so embedded in your experience that the thought just you're not questioning it you might not even be aware of it and you're responding to it as if it's true mm -hmm. so you've like deceived yourself <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, be it a, a, a judgment, an interpretation, or like you say, an actual belief about yourself, how people respond to you, whatever, whatever scenario that may be. It's so buying into it means that you're not necessarily even aware that this is thought that you've just merged with it so much that you become it, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's just reality. It's taken as fact. It's taken as fact. Yeah. 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 So I think that's one thing like in meditation, like, um, you know, doing counting the breath, focusing on the belly. Um, you can go through a clear progression in which there's a feeling of like, oh, I'm carried away by my thoughts. Um, and then you get to where you drop down more, your awareness drops down more into your body. And then there's an experience of, oh, thoughts are happening, but I'm not carried away by them. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like the thoughts are kind of sticky and you get yeah. caught into the thoughts. So it's like a stickiness. Mm -hmm. But when you drop into this deeper embodied awareness, then it's like the kind of the stickiness starts going away. So then it's just, oh, a thought's happening, but there's not the stickiness of me identifying into it. Yeah. So then you start feeling you're down in your body and then there's kind of more just this open space that you experience. Your awareness is more this open space that feels relaxed and happy. Um, and so then you become aware, oh, before I was in my thoughts and I was in kind of a closed space and it's kind of the stickiness of getting in the thoughts. Versus, oh, now I'm in this kind of open witnessing space. There's like open awareness. And so it's like the awareness itself becomes more refined and more subtle. So that there's not the automatic uh, stickiness getting caught into the thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that experience of cognitive fusion, it has a qualitative experience of the awareness being not as refined and getting stuck into it. Yeah. Yeah. This is when you get to this kind of witnessing awareness, then you feel, oh, this this feels different. The awareness itself feels different. And so then the thoughts themselves 
they just kind of come and go, but they don't, they're not sticky. Yeah. So they, they, they there's a good, uh, it might've been, um, Andy Puddicombe from, from Headspace, but there was a metaphor of a feather on glass hmm. when like thoughts become yeah. like feather on glass. That's, that's when you know you're in a open yeah. space. Like it, 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 yeah, they can become incredibly light feather, feather light and, um, float through consciousness rather than like you mentioned the stickiness i also just find it fascinating that there are these ontological qualities to the <laughs> yeah. film. it's like yeah because it, it it it's not just that you're you it's not like at least in my experience of it it's not like just like you're using that as a metaphor like there is that there's that dimension to, to the conscious experience of that stickiness whatever that is um mm -hmm. yeah anyway that's a, that's another <laughs> another tangent yeah, but that, yeah that's fascinating um, that, that i mean we don't have time to, today to go into it but i i correlate the buddhist contemplative structure with the taoist one um and yeah so there's kind of like you know focusing on the breath energy in the belly uh focusing on the heart mind as a source of awareness it kind of gives you a different anatomy to relate to your experience mm -hmm. um and then, yeah, you know, the experience of breath energy and how it relates to awareness. So then, yeah, becoming sensitive to kind of this range of uh, subtle to dense experience within awareness itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of a combination of all these things that, yeah, it literally, like you're saying, feather on glass. Yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's like a, almost like the tactile quality of awareness. Yes. Yeah, exactly. As like a tactile phenomenon. Yeah. It, it actually has that that tactile quality um mm -hmm. i i i'll ask it i hope i didn't send us away yeah. from because i know you're in a trail of thought but i've experienced because you mentioned that stickiness i've experienced that with, with my sense of self through experiences of um ungroundedness paranoia um like when my mental health has been really poor a feeling that through through the waking experience, like just out in the world, that I was getting stuck energetically. And that's something I've had to work on. And it's in recent years, because of that ontological understanding of that tactile element of energy, I've only then really been able to address it because I've had to just admit that it is a thing, you know, to, to work on it. And that's been a huge practice for me, like rather than that stickiness um, that can manifest as like paranoia or just, just self-consciousness being like the feather on glass as I move through the world. Um, so I wonder if there's a link there as well in terms of at, at one point that sense of self that I had was, was very, um, yeah, just had that stickiness to it that, that was attracting or, or, I was getting stuck in experience and, and um, just thought I'd add that on because it's relevant to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like early Buddhism, early Taoism, these were oral traditions before reading and writing. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it really is kind of getting you to this more embodied intuitive awareness, which would be more sensitive to touch mm -hmm. um, and would be aware of concepts, but aware of concepts in relation to, the sensory experience mm -hmm. um whereas when you get into the reading and writing then that 
the conceptual mind can take over so much that you're not aware of how much you're in the conceptual mind and then you kind of lose touch with the possibility that there even can be a range of experience yeah uh, yeah so then it just kind of gets baked in um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah 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 lost in the realm of concept and disconnected from uh-huh from those two channels again it brings yeah it, it kind of brings back to those two channels of the sensation and, and the, the cognition side mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. and then in the Taoist model it'll talk about the jing energy the chi energy the shen energy um and so again it's kind of it gives you an anatomy to be with your experience in such a way that um it decenters the cognitive awareness mm -hmm. um and it gives you something it gives you focal points of awareness where you can rest in those places mm -hmm. um so it makes it easier than to yeah be in that place as opposed to being up in the head mm -hmm. so with with this part and this comparison like with act and and the witnessing consciousness mm -hmm. you also mentioned that space beyond like the non-dual yeah how do you differentiate between the two this is also uh, like i maybe we have to have another conversation because there are things i want to ask related to my experience but that that idea of like the collapse of the witness is something more recently i've explored um mm -hmm. But how, how would you differentiate that? Because like, it, it right. sounds on some level like to witness your thought, that's the, not the final destination, but the only place you can go, but that place beyond is is something else. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so then with self as context, um, this is where I bring in some Mahayana teaching. I use the Yogacara teaching on the eight consciousnesses, mm -hmm. which maps out consciousness, phenomenologically maps it out. Um, and then I also have... Um, two practices one is just resting in awareness and another one is exploring what's the source of awareness mm -hmm. um so okay the eight consciousnesses you have the five senses seeing hearing smelling tasting touching then you have the sixth one which is um the mind consciousness so that's like uh thinking right so your eye will get in touch with the visual form uh your mind will get in touch with the mental phenomena okay so those are six um, then there's the seventh consciousness, which is the sense of a, the sense of being a separate self, the sense of being an individual self. Mm -hmm. And then the eighth consciousness is the store consciousness, or sometimes called the ground consciousness. And so it's the ground out of which the other seven manifest. So the sensory experience, the mind consciousness, and even the sense of a separate self these are seen as all manifesting out of the store consciousness or a ground consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so with meditation practice, um, you usually what they'll say is you need, you need at first you need some object to be aware of because your mind is so getting carried away. You need something just stable to focus on. Right. So aware of the breathing or aware of a mantra or aware of a candle flame, Mm -hmm. you have an object to focus on so that makes it easier to notice if your mind wandered off or not um so and there's a certain school of tibetan buddhism they'll say that's stopping with a support you're trying to stop the mind from wandering off and so you have a support to help you do that so awareness of the breathing so you have a subject of awareness and an object of awareness uh 
So the object could be the breath, uh, and then you have a subject that's aware of that object, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you practice doing that enough, you get to where you can stay with the object and your mind is not wandering off. So that tends to help. You're more aware of the object, but then you're also more aware of the subject that is aware of the object, right? Mm -hmm. So that subject that's aware of the object is more the witnessing self or the witnessing awareness. And so, again, by being mindful of the breath or mindful of the body, you are also getting in touch with the witnessing self. So you can start to just experience more clearly, more directly. Oh, yeah, there is this witnessing self that's witnessing the sensations, witnessing the emotions, witnessing the thoughts. Um, so you're still subject object, but it's kind of like a clear witnessing subject mm -hmm. um, that's not carried away by the objects. Okay. Then over time, there can be the, the experience of awareness itself can become stronger and stronger. And so then it's like, you start being aware, oh, even the subject of awareness is something that's manifesting in the awareness. Um, and so then you kind of start opening up to just the awareness itself. Mm -hmm. And then the subject and object um, becomes less um, solid, I guess you would say. Um, and so you're basically, you're in, you're, so the practice would be like awareness of awareness. Um, you're aware of awareness. You're aware of your mind starting to move. You let go of that and you come back. You're just in the awareness itself. Mm -hmm. Or you're practicing what's the source of the awareness. So you're focusing on awareness. And then if there's any movement or deviation out of it, you you turn yourself back into the awareness. Um, so then it's kind of just... It's kind of organic that the awareness itself becomes more vivid or more real. And then it becomes clear there's a difference between something that's an object of your awareness. It arises in your awareness and then it passes away, right? Um, and then even, you know, you have the experience of the subject of awareness and it has a certain quality to it um, that you can be aware of mm -hmm. as an object. Um, Whereas the awareness itself, you can't be aware of it like an as an object. Uh, and because you can't be aware of it as an object, there's also no subject arising to be aware of it as an object. Mm -hmm. So then it's it's hard to explain, but it's it's kind of like this non-dual ground just organically becomes more and more um, manifesting. And so it's beyond your willpower to control. Um, and yeah, it's deeper than the sense of being an individual self. So in this Yogacara teaching, it would be like, instead of identifying with one little piece of your experience, it's like you're opening up to the whole experience and you're letting go of the subject-object duality inside of that experience. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they would say then that you're grabbing onto the store consciousness starts to relax um, and then there's just the, yeah, there's just this underlying ground or non-dual ground. Mm -hmm. um, you could think like a farmer cultivating a field. You're cultivating wholesome states of body and mind. You're letting go of unwholesome states. But over time, you start to become aware, oh, uh, me, the farmer, is actually a manifestation of the field. <laughs> yeah. 
um, and so then, yeah, so it's kind of just a, it's, it's just a natural organic thing that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it feels good. It feels peaceful. It feels relaxing. It feels like you want to do it more and more. Mm -hmm. I I'm going to, there's a lot I want to say on that, but I'm going to park it because I, just for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I'm going to have the discipline, but I, I'm, I love how you describe that. And that essentially is like a lot of modern non-duality teachings. That's what they're pointing to for better mm-hmm. or for worse. Um, often they're not as embedded in the kind of systems that, that you embed it in. So I think it, it can, it can come with problems. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed how you described that and just that experience of, I th- yeah, I'll park, I'll park it mostly, but I think that, that in my sense, things can also spring from the witness consciousness, like this, this meta level of thought of, oh, look how good I'm meditating or, um, I think can contribute to, to paranoia. Uh, that That's something I want to explore more, um, because I think that part of my awakening process was that cultivation of the witness um, and an expansion of awareness that then came with judgment, came with with other things that created a, an outsourcing of thought. So that like the witness was like this projection of the judgmental God, like this idea of this kind of um, biblical ju- judgmental God. Um, but that's a huge topic, but it just, yeah, I really like how you mm-hmm. um, articulated that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's why it's important to have the yogic structure where you work with the sensations and then the gross level, and then you get to the more subtle level of sensation. Yeah. And, and that relates to the breath energy. Uh, and then that leads you to awareness of awareness. So it's kind of a ground up way of getting there. Mm-hmm. So that when you get to the, the non-dual place, it's not disembodied cerebral. Mm-hmm. It's like it's coming from a ground that you built up over time. Mm-hmm. So then it's it's it feels good and there's kind of a trusting of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more of like the progressive path compared to the direct path of, of, of some mm-hmm. some schools. Mm-hmm. Um are, are you good to move on to values? I'm unconscious of the, yeah, yeah. the, the sure. time. Yeah. It was so the did you cover the practice for that in terms oh, yeah. so, of? Um, so I'm influenced by Ramana Maharishi, who's this uh, Hindu teacher, and he would he taught self-inquiry, which is basically you're asking, who am I? Mm-hmm. And that means you turn the camera back on itself and you're trying to explore where is the awareness coming from, the the feeling of being or I amness, mm-hmm. where is it coming from? Um, and then also there's, he would also teach surrender, meaning you're just, letting go into the awareness. So, mm-hmm. so those are two practices that could go with self as context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that we're touching upon this. Um, yeah, that like self-inquiry. Because it is, it's really important like this, that the way, again, just reiterate that because it's embedded in a much wider system without that, and, and a lot of modern... Um, teaching or interpretation of this just goes straight to that what you've just said without the rest of the supportive structure and i think that it it's kind of kryptonite at times isn't it that um yeah 
so yeah it's it's I, although i know that maharishi he he did he also did that right he also kind of pointed straight there but um yeah i, I personally think this the support structure is really important um okay so values right. yeah. yeah moving on to values okay so uh i've correlated act values with um the three jewels the four noble truths mm -hmm. and then the mangala sutta the discourse on happiness mm -hmm. um so the three jewels would be the buddha dharma sangha and the practice is taking refuge in the buddha dharma sangha um so that means being aware of the buddha being aware of his teachings um so if you were alive during the time of the buddha it would mean spending time with the buddha and taking refuge in his spiritual presence um and then it would also mean you you listen to his teaching and you put it into practice so that would be mm -hmm. taking refuge in the dharma and then the sangha would mean um being with your fellow practitioners and originally it meant other people that had reached spiritual awakening beside the buddha so you would be taking refuge in them as well um but over time sangha has come to mean uh the monastic sangha in general and then and then it's come to mean the buddhist community in general the the lay practitioners and the monastics um so so the value is that you value this process of spiritual awakening and you want to be with teachers and teachings and practitioners that are supporting you to do this uh practice mm -hmm. uh, so that would be like a core value then um then the four noble truths would be you're aware of the overall teaching about the 12 links and the four establishments of mindfulness and um, the eightfold path. And then I didn't say it, but the, the 16 exercises of mindfulness of breathing, that kind of is the nitty gritty of the meditation. So we talked about that without me saying I was talking. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, So the Four Noble Truths, just, you know, you're aware of the process of rebirth and you have the overall value. You want to steer it in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. You want to steer it away from a negative direction. Um, and, you know, um, traditionally, there's three goals, uh, greater welfare and happiness in the present life, uh, favorable rebirth, and then liberation from rebirth. So mm -hmm. that would be kind of the the trajectory you're trying to go on. Okay, then in the Mangala Sutta, it's a discourse on happiness where the Buddha um, talks about different life areas that you should focus on. <clears throat> so he talks about um, family life, uh, being skilled at a trade, having a job, uh, living in a suitable environment, uh, spending time with people that uh, are a good influence on you, um, being charitable to people that are in need, um not being addicted to substances um spending time with monks and nuns um um keeping the precepts um and then you know eventually over multiple lifetimes at some point becoming a monk or nun yourself <laughs> over multiple lifetimes eventually attaining nirvana mm -hmm. um so this is kind of like the values for the community, the lay practitioners and the monastics. It kind of gives you the overall ecosystem that, that you're in. And then um, early Buddhism became part of the Mauryan civilization. 
which was uh, led by Chandragupta in India. And um, out of that came the, uh, the Purushartas, which are the four life goals. And so that talks about um, Dharma, meaning your duty to your family, your community. Mm -hmm. um, artha, which means being skilled at a trade, making a living. Um, kama, which means pleasure. So that's like uh, sexual pleasure, rest and recre re recreation, art, culture, mm -hmm. doing whatever you do for fun. Mm -hmm. um, and then moksha would be the spiritual awakening or spiritual path. So I kind of combine everything I've just talked about. I, I kind of use those all as values that are the values that the tradition comes with. Yeah. Um, and then I tend to combine that with the act discussion where it says, okay, here's these life areas like family, education, job, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess long story short, I take the traditional values of the three jewels, the four noble truths, the Mangala Sutta, and then the, the four, uh, Purusartas as the overall kind of Buddhist yogic set of values. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think as well, because I know you mentioned when we looked at act and values as not being dogmatic. Mm -hmm. What I really like about that, and I found this as well when I when I started, I say studying Buddhism as a lay Buddhist reading kind of um, various books and, and, you know, research on my own around it. Um, those values like give guidance you know if someone's having their, a spiritual awakening or someone's like oh i feel that again going back to that that feeling aspect of the value i feel i want to cultivate more spirituality here are some ways you can do that it's not dogmatic but find people that have this a shared interest in spirituality so you can take refuge there like find a community if that's necessary read scripture and and it i like the it's not dogmatic, but at the same time, it offers a structure that allows people to add spiritual value. Because I think that there can be, it can be hard to know where to look. And I find that in Buddhism, there were certain things where I was like, oh, uh, that's something I can integrate as a practice, even if it is compassion. And I can just understand the, the context in Buddhism of compassion and then seek to integrate that as part of my practice. Um, so yeah, I like that that synthesis between the two in in terms of values and giving people the the chance to choose choose choo like try on a value, see how see how you like it. Maybe you adapt it and and find a different way, but it adds that spiritual dimension to in a practical way, in a structured way. Yeah, it's not based on belief; it's more based on practice and trial mm -hmm. and error. It's kind mm -hmm. of like, well, you know, according to our experience, based on Based on based on the tradition, the experiences people have been having in the tradition, uh, this seems to be the thing that is important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can take it or leave it. You can yeah. try it out. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, it's not like a heavy-handed kind of <laughs> uh, thou yeah. shalt. It's more like, well, based on our experience, this seems to be what's important. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to you have to try it yourself. You have to 
practice with it yourself and see if it matches with your experience or not. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, if there's something new that hasn't been there before, we should add it in. Mm -hmm. Or if there's something there that is turning out to be not good or negative, we should take it out. Um, but based on our experience, here's the things that have held up and kind of keep, so far they keep holding up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, that's a really important distinction that they're lived practice like values as a as an experience and as as an action rather than just like a concept not not like a list of sins or anything like that but but um a way to to strive to be mm -hmm. as as best as you can like something to to aim towards as well like to become more aligned to to those spiritual values yeah and some people like i've shown this model to some of my friends and some um, are more Mahayana. And so they'll bring in like the four immeasurables, like loving kindness, compassion, mm -hmm. sympathetic joy, equanimity. Um, or they'll bring in the 10 paramitas of like um, generosity, renunciation, um, concentration, wisdom. There's like these kind of mm -hmm. wholesome values, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so that I haven't, Sometimes Buddhism can come across as, oh, just don't do the negative things. Yeah. Um, um, so, but yeah, there are there are um, positive things that you can focus on and cultivate as, oh, this is a positive thing and it should be cultivated. Mm -hmm. um, and my experience is, yeah, even if the early stuff doesn't say as much what the positive thing is, it, it's pretty obvious or self-evident or pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, but like we're saying in general, it's something for you to practice with and find out for yourself, as opposed to thou shalt do this and, uh, there's no negotiation with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm aware we're, we're, we're around time. Um, was there anything that you wanted to add in terms of, of bringing it together and tying it together was it was there a, a way that you'd like to to do that yeah well one thing um yeah i liked hearing how i think i mentioned this before in our last episode but how stephen hayes is talking about act as acceptance commitment training mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so he's kind of broadening it from acceptance commitment therapy to acceptance commitment training um so it can include therapy, but it can also be um, a training that you do outside of therapy as well. Um, so I think with Buddhism, it, it, it Buddhism comes as a training that you do as an individual, but something you also do as a community or a congregation. Um, and maybe what informally, there's always been counseling happening in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, but now I feel like ACT can help us take the Buddhist theory and practice and more consciously develop the social context of counseling, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or group counseling. Um, so I feel like ACT is uh, helping kind of flesh out how Buddhism could be used in the context of counseling and how these theory and practices that are already there um, and that you find it in the meditation practice how that could also be done as a relational uh, practice or a counseling practice. So I think that's something that is a real benefit of 
correlating act with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, and then another, uh, uh, just a story came to my mind as we were talking. There's um, this Japanese Zen monk named Hakuen, and he's a pre-modern monk. I can't remember exactly what century, but um, so the story is that he became a monk and he was doing the koan practice, like who am I or what's your face before you're born. Uh, and he was practicing really hard, doing a lot of meditation. And then at a certain point, he got sick, like his body started getting weak and he was having issues, right? So he was wandering around Japan and he eventually gets to a cave and inside the cave, he meets a Taoist hermit. And the Taoist hermit says, oh, well, you've depleted all your chi. You've depleted your breath energy. Um, you have to do the practice of counting the breath, focusing on the belly. Don't do the koan practice. Just do mm -hmm. counting the breath, focusing on the belly as a way to rebuild your breath energy, uh, as a way to rest the conceptual mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's they talk about like the ocean of chi, like you're wanting to um build up this breath energy uh container right and that so he did that practice and that restored his health and it helped him you know become um get out of his head and be down in his body and um restore his health and then then once he once he did that then he went back to the koan practice um, and then the koan practice worked much better because he started with that foundation of mm. the breath and the breath energy first. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I think the idea then of reviving this yogic tradition of practice in early Buddhism, early Taoism, <clears throat> where you have this contemplative structure and then you have a, a progression where you're working with the body and then the breath energy and then awareness itself. Um, and, but also seeing how they're interconnected um, right from the beginning, you're working with all of them um, because they're interconnected, but there is a general recommended progression or mm -hmm. kind of a ground up approach uh, to how you work with it. Um, so anyway, that story came to mind as we were talking. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the need for humans in general to to reconnect to a yogic oral tradition that's before the reading and writing mm -hmm. um, and build up this yogic foundation. And based on that foundation, then you can get into the more kind of philosophical yeah. stuff or the stuff where you're working with perception. But now it's a more grounded experience. Um, um, so you can, you can get into the high end level of working with perception, um, but it's not, uh, deracinated or disconnected mm. conceptual mind. It's like, um, it's, it, yeah, it's grounded. Yeah. I I'm, I'm fully with you on that. I, I really, and I, I just want to really acknowledge like how, how impressive this system is. I I'm really awed by it, by the, the expanse of your knowledge. And, and it's, it's really quite evident that when you, you talk it's because you, you know, you, you embody this and, and 
we, we've spoken and I you, I can see how you're like kind of picking these different parts because it's alive in you and, and I really appreciate that. And my my sense, having talked through this, exactly what you say is, is that need to ground through a practice and this kind of system allows for that clarity. I, I, I think it really allows that clarity and not only the clarity of, of embodying uh, and embodying that progression, but that link with ACT can allow it to become really tangible and, and workable for, for a lot of people as well. So yeah, I just want to acknowledge that and thank you for the work that you've put in and, and will no doubt continue to put in. And I'm really excited to see how this evolves and um, yeah, I'm sure we're going to have another discussion uh, at some well point soon. Yeah. yeah thanks thanks for that uh feedback i appreciate it and um yeah it's like it's kind of crazy like i i kind of stumbled across the act and then it i'm like oh this kind of fits with this this kind of fits with that and then the more i kept going i'm like yeah it really does <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, it's amazing how much it synchronizes with the early Buddhist teaching and the oral tradition mm -hmm. and um, the different elements that are there. It's yeah. It's amazing how that there's, is, there is this kind of organic fit. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly that is a gift that you have that, that high level synthesis. I know that was, I, I found you through that work that, that you did with the somatic experience in. And I just think it's, yes, it's super valuable to, to, to modernize these approaches to be able to see those correlations and understand them well enough to know why they work and the kind of mechanics behind it as well as the wisdom behind it um my my voice has started going so clearly okay. <laughs> clearly we're out of time <laughs> but... that's your timer <laughs> um, yeah john it's been a pleasure and, and i'm i'm sure we will um talk again did, did you have anywhere to point people if they're interested in in more of this uh, more of your work mm-hmm um yeah i have an online virtual temple um it's called mukti vihara so that's m-u-k-t-i-v-i-h-a-r-a dot org mm -hmm. um so there you can see meditation teachings um meditation practice um and then there's um my podcast and my Substack are there um and then um then the other thing would be my academia page. If you look up uh, John Brooks Freeze or John B. Freeze uh, Academia, and then you'll find um, the articles I've written uh, that are published there also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much, John. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. And I'm sure that the people tuning in, they're going to get a lot of value from it. And hopefully they'll really enjoy the graphics that we add in, in post-production. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thank you, Ricky. I've enjoyed it. And thank yeah, you. I look forward to future conversations. Me too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mind That Ego podcast. To stay up to date, you can join the Mind That Ego mailing list if you head to mindthatego.com slash MFM. You'll also get a copy of my book, 
mindsets for mindfulness when you join. You can also follow Mind That Ego on Facebook and YouTube where the podcasts are also displayed in video format along with other inspired videos that I create. Or if Instagram is more your social media of choice, you can follow me at Ricky underscore Deriz. That's D-E-R-I-S-Z. 